welcome to the Alaskan Journey podcast. My name is Jamin Gurker. I'm an associate real estate broker in the state of Alaska, and my mission is to help you to build an intentional and significant legacy for yourself and your family by coaching you in real estate. And today I'm very lucky to be joined by um, Ann and Sean, who lived in Alaska for uh, lived in Alaska for years, kind of up near the, the Talkeetna area and kind of an off-grid community. They have some great stories that they talk about in the, the book that Ann wrote called Follow Me to Alaska. And the link for that is going to be in the show notes down below. So we're you know very excited to be talking about this um, today and all their experiences. So um, Ann, Ann and Sean, thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Yeah, <laughs> All right. So let's let's go and just jump in here real quick then. Um, so I guess one thing that uh, really caught my attention in the book is it sounds like Sean was actually the first one that kind of started talking about Alaska. You guys were um, down in Texas, uh, which, you know, we've kind of talked a bit before, like a lot of the places you guys um, grew up in and, um, you know, lived in for decades. Like it sounds very familiar to me. It's about the same places I was in. But, you know, Sean sounded like he was the first one to kind of start talking about Alaska. So uh, was what what made that come about? Well, I was the first one to start talking about it. And it the reason I, I did was because I was in a aviation career. I was in law enforcement. I was flying helicopters and airplanes for the state police here. And uh, where I was stationed at in El Paso, the El Paso International Airport, I kept having these Alaska pilots, cargo pilots come through and uh, and just talking to me about Alaska. And, uh, you know, and I know Alaska is kind of the hub, the world hub of av aviation. And uh, and it really piqued my interest. And, and I started talking about it and never quit. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, That checks out. Um, so you guys did mention you were able to come up here for kind of an extended stay. I think it was like 16 days back in 2016. Um, did you guys have a chance to, to come up here prior to that? Or is that your uh, your first exposure to being up here? That was it. That was our, our trip to come up and see if that's where we wanted to live. Got it. And Anne, what, uh, what were your thoughts going into it and... You know, what did you think once you guys were, were actually up here? Well, I thought it was beautiful. It's, a, it's such a beautiful place. And um, we, we hired a air taxi to take us out to Cub Lake. And so as soon as we landed at Cub Lake and I got out of the airplane and saw uh, strawberries growing on the runway, just wild strawberries, I think that was when I decided that's pretty wonderful. <laughs> I'd never seen anything like that. Just, and the beauty, it really captured my heart. And so uh, I was gay, I, even out. I remember when we hired that air taxi, I thought it was only going to be about a 10, 15 minute flight to the cabin. And we got in the airplane and we just kept going and going and going over just, just forest. Um, and when we finally got there, uh, the, the pilot kind of did a loop around the house and he said, that's going to be your new house. And it really made me think, yeah, I think I could do this. So <laughs> I was uh, not just with Alaska, but with that cabin at Cub Lake, I, I, I knew that's where I would like to live. Yeah. See, and that's uh, that's the thing that really caught my attention about y'all's story. Most people will will kind of like stick their toes in. Maybe they'll move to Anchorage or <laughs> Wasilla, Palmer, and then like slowly start edging into more remote places. No, you guys like jumped in <laughs> both feet right from the beginning and went more remote. Um, we did. Uh, in fact, whenever I wrote the book, my working title was all in, <laughs> and I ended up changing it later, but. Yes, we we decided we were gonna go the do the full experience if we were gonna do it. <laughs> well, you definitely did that. So, what you know, what in y'all's background kind of prepared you guys? You think for for more of this remote, off grid kind of lifestyle? Well, I grew up on a on a cotton farm out in West Texas. You know, we weren't really remote or off grid, but you know, I lived fifteen miles from town. And, you know, I learned how to work on stuff 
uh, you know, and kind of be independent and not, you, you couldn't hire somebody to come fix your, your lawnmower when it broke down. You know, you had to fix it. So that was kind of my experience. And, you know, I grew up hunting and fishing. And I guess the only thing I had going for me was uh, I had stayed home for several years when our kids were little and been on a very tight budget. And when when we were there, I remember going trying to go to the grocery store only once a month because it was cheaper that way. <laughs> if I went more often, I spent more money. And so there was a time in our life where I wrote out my list, my grocery list, and I would go to the grocery store about once a month when the kids were little and kind of stuck to that. And I think that was the one thing that helped me was I knew I didn't have to run to the store every few days to get groceries. So where Sean could fix things and uh, kind of take care of all that, my job was food. And so I knew I could do that. Yeah. And I love in the book how, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but you guys really did operate like as a team out there. And it was, you know, really something you could see like in the book, kind of talking about just instantly going to those roles and everyone kind of focusing on their jobs. And well, uh, not at first. <laughs> there, there's some we, kinks to work out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. When we first got out there, we had lots of very loud discussions, I guess we could say, <laughs> you know, trying to get through those roles figured out and, and trying to figure out what we were doing. But no, not at, at first. I, I wouldn't say that we worked as a, a well-oiled machine at the very beginning, would you? No, and that, you know, it kind of goes back to, we didn't, we didn't just dip our toes in. We just thought, you know what, this is going to be hard. So we've got to be all in. If we, if we have a place here and leave a place here in Texas to come back to, we're coming back. Right. So we thought we got to sell everything and we got to go with what we're going to do. If we're, if this is going to work, we got to do it right. Yep. Absolutely. And kind of talking about the, um, well, I guess real quick, the one thing I talk with a lot of people about when they're moving to Alaska is kind of the conversations that they have with, um, with family members and friends. Um, what was some of the reactions you were getting from getting from the audience when you were talking about, about moving up here? We had two, two very specific reactions. There was no middle ground. It was either, man, that sounds like fun, or you guys are absolutely crazy and you've lost your mind. There was no middle. Uh, and maybe at least because we were going so extreme. But we had family members that were pretty upset with us. And then we had other people that said, man, I, I wish I could do that. And uh, we lived at Cub Lake for five years. And over those five years, I think we had pretty much everybody understand by the end of that. Especially after the book came out. Yeah. It, they understood why we did it and, and why we needed it. And, and I think they were all converts yeah. by the end of it. Not that they would want to do it but they understood why we did. Exactly. It's not completely coming out of left field for them anymore. <laughs> right. So how, how big is Cub Lake, by the way? Like you guys were talking about like landing planes and stuff like that on the lake, but um, you know, how big was it? Well, it's called Cub Lake, not because it's named after bear cubs. It's named after uh, Piper Super Cubs because that's the kind of plane you had to have to get in and out of it. It was only 1,400 feet long at the longest part. So when you come in on floats and there's trees all around, so you had you had to have a very specific airplane to drop in or take off from that lake, and it was a cub. Okay, so you're um, probably not going to be landing a whole lot of whole lot of planes on that thing at all. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay, well that's that's good to know then. So one question I had then, um, you know, you guys were talking about about getting all your stuff here and you went through a lot of different plans in order to make that happen. Um, would you like to kind of talk about logistically what it was like getting all your, your stuff from Texas over to, you know, remote Cub Lake in Alaska? Well, we, we, like Sean said, we sold pretty much everything. The cabin was uh, furnished with very old furniture, by the way, but um, so we didn't have to, bring furniture or anything like that. So basically what we did was we sold everything we owned except for 31 totes full of our 
personal items. And we uh, sent those through the mail and our real estate agent actually uh, took possession of those and kept them in her uh, garage until we got there. Uh, and when we got there, we uh, went to a big box store and bought up lots of supplies. Uh, we went and bought chainsaws and oh, quite a bit of stuff and then had it freighted out on a barge up the Yentna River. And it was placed on the side of the river. <laughs> and uh, we had a neighbor out there. He, he told us we can take the eight mile trail to the river and get your stuff and bring it back to public. And so we thought that was our plan. We also bought a, a, a side by side on tracks and we thought, Okay, we're we're good to go, but we had no idea about muskeg. It we didn't have muskeg in Texas. So we had mud, but not muskeg. So why don't you go ahead and explain for the audience what muskeg is? Uh, the the way I tell people is it's almost like a, a piece of land over water. It feels very much like a waterbed for people. Some people wouldn't even know what that is, uh, but it's mushy and it's, and you can break through and it's not stable at all. And in the muskeg area, there's lots of small ponds, there's lakes. And from time to time, there's little hills that have good dirt. And so that trail from Cub Lake all the way to the river was through lots and lots of muskeg. So when we were going to get our stuff, it was just going from hill to hill, just praying we didn't break through the muskeg or get stuck. And uh, we had trouble after trouble. We got stuck a lot. <laughs> we got stuck a lot. <laughs> it took us about two months to get our all of our our household household goods that three miles. It was really just three miles as the crow flies, but it was an eight mile trek because you had to go from hill to hill to hill trying to make it over to the river. I, I cannot even tell you. I, I think we probably lost 10 years off of our life, maybe oh, yeah. five. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it that, that trail ages you so fast. Oh, like it's, it did. It did. We and, had no idea what we were doing. No. <laughs> and if, you know, this was in August. If we'd have just waited a little while, ground was going to freeze up hard then we could have done it in in, in an hour you know? <laughs> in a freight sled we didn't have the right equipment and we weren't doing it the right time of year and we just kept banging our heads on the wall thinking we okay we can do this you know uh and finally uh we ended up having that that pilot uh he took our stuff in the air and just hopped it over it took seven trips and what like less than an hour to get all of our household goods that we had been trying to get for about two months. Oh, that's so frustrating. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes. you guys were going through it like it's not just like the, you know, trying to get there like you guys had like the side by sides that were breaking down like the tracks you're constantly yes. having to, to pretty much rebuild because I mean that that's rough terrain to be going over for any vehicle. <laughs> It is. We had we had no idea. We're you know we're from West Texas. The ground's hard, <laughs> <laughs> but we aren't quitters. <laughs> we kept trying. <laughs> Stayed after it and got all the stuff there. That's that's really what matters. <laughs> well, and we kept thinking we needed those supplies to help us prepare for winter. You know, we knew we had to get ready for winter. So uh, our neighbor Roger helped Sean with the first load and trying to just get. I remember them getting guns and um, and uh, saws, yeah. your chainsaws, you know, and I was kind of mad about that. I thought you got your stuff and not my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but those were what we needed. And uh, the freighter who had taken all of our items out there, he told us you need to get the food back to your cabin quickly because it was going to attract bears. We had a, a big freezer full of meat. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. So we got that. I think we got the meat like in the second or third trip and it was all frozen solids, thankfully, or it would, wouldn't have lasted out there. But, oh, yeah, we had quite the adventure just trying to get moved in because we had no idea what we were doing. 
And I guess that's when we learned that we were Chitacos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone's everyone gets it. Everyone gets it. I mean, it's it's so frustrating because you come through that and then you look back and you're like, man, same position. I could be done with this in like one day, <laughs> like yeah. zero heartburn. But you just you don't know that the first time around. <laughs> no. All right. Yep. So after kind of settling in a little bit over there, once you've got like all your personal belongings, uh, what were some of the big initial challenges you guys had um, to kind of overcome that first year because um, kind of the time that you were moving in around that august time frame you've got some time before winter gets there but um, not a whole lot especially if you're just getting used to an area so what was the you know what was that process like and what were some other challenges you guys had yeah you know we we knew winter was coming and, and that place we moved into had zero firewood so I mean, we knew we needed a lot and uh and we didn't we, know how much. And we didn't know how much we were going to need, and we were we were getting green wood. I mean, <laughs> it was wet because you know how August is rainy. So we spent a lot of that time cutting firewood, and uh, I when, don't know what else. When we weren't trying to get our stuff from the river, we were uh, getting firewood, but we were also learning how to live off grid. Uh, I remember having to figure out when to wash dishes because you don't have just all the water that you need. Uh, we had to be careful with our electricity. We had never lived with solar panels and generators and that kind of stuff. So that was probably when we started learning how to work together because I had to have Sean's help to get enough electricity so I could get my jobs done. So just learning how to live in an off-grid cabin was tricky, very tricky. Yeah, because I mean, all the resources, like the electricity, the you know, the power to everything, like there's limited amount of it. So I mean, we're um, in civilization. I'm say that in air quotes. And like civilization, like we really don't have to have to like kind of ration it out and strategize and stuff like that so it's just a completely different way of living it is yeah, when we had no idea what was coming you know we're like i said we're from west texas and we've never been through a winter like that and you know of course we were thinking the worst and uh so we had to, we were trying to prepare for the worst we didn't even know how to prepare for the worst <laughs> <laughs> trying to get as much wood as possible <laughs> Oh man, that's yeah. I'm just imagining like how much that house must have smoked up when you guys were trying to trying to burn the the wet green stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to get it burned, you know. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get anything. <laughs> yeah, I def yeah, I definitely get that. Um, what was that that first winter like for you guys? Because I know like everyone looks out and, you know, they see the snow like I'm looking at it right now through my window and everyone's like, oh, it's so pretty. Like it's so peaceful when the snow is coming down. It hits completely different when you you live up here and you have to like actually take care of it. I imagine it hits even differently like when you're living off grid. So uh, what was that first year? What was the you know, first winter, was it kind of a big adjustment for you guys? What was the biggest learning curves? Maybe that's the best way to ask that. Well, before I answer that question, I, I'd like to tell you something that happened to us when we were out there as things started to freeze up. Uh, and I didn't write about this in, the, in my book. Uh, I wish I would have, because thinking back, it was one of the most, uh, I don't know, really interesting phenomenon that happened but that year when we first got there we had freezing temperatures for a, quite a while before we had any snow and so our lake froze up really nice and solid and there was one day when Sean hollered at me um, my daughter-in-law moved with us so she and I were in the house and Sean hollered at us and we went out on the front porch and he said do you hear that you hear that noise and I listened and there was this eerie sound that was just, it felt like it was all around us. And we listened and we thought, what is that? I mean, everything in our life had changed. And here was this the most eerie noise we'd ever heard in our lives. It sounded like aliens. It did. It <laughs> sounded like aliens. And so 
uh, we went out and trying to figure out where it was coming from. And it took us a little while, but we figured out that it was coming from that ice and that ice expanding and cracking was making this noise that sounded, the way I explain it is it sounds like a, a saw. Have you ever uh, touched a saw and it made that? Wah, 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 right, sound? right. It sounded like that, but it was all around. And so uh, Sean and Mariah and I walked around to the very end of the lake and we said, let's jump and come back down and see if we can make it make that sound because it wasn't all the time. And so we all three jumped up and came back down and we could hear that that lake all the way down. It went, woo, 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 and then it came back towards us. So we knew it was the ice making that noise. But that was one of the craziest thing. I, I was about, I thought, I was about ready to get out of there. <laughs> Even after <laughs> we got our stuff and, and we were kind of getting settled in, there was just this that crazy noise. So that was that was pretty interesting thing that happened. And then uh, and then we finally got some snow. So it it gave us a little bit of time to to get some things done. And whenever the ground froze, it was a lot easier to get around and, and try to get more wood. Wouldn't you say? Oh yeah. And now I've forgotten your question. Uh, biggest learning curves, but biggest yeah, learning. man, I, man, that's so I'm glad you brought up that you guys were able to actually like hear that, you know, out at the lake, because I mean, we've got lakes around here. I, I never hear it, but it's never quiet enough to like actually right. hear it. I mean, it's, I was talking with um, uh, the Bramante brothers, like um, I think it was about a month or so ago. They have like a lodge over like in the Brown uh, Denali and they said they'll have people go out there and there's like no distractions, no road noise, like nothing. And like people or visitors are coming through, they're like, what's that sound? And it's like a bumblebee and they've never actually heard what a bumblebee sounds like because it's been so loud. It kind of reminds me what you guys were talking about there with the lake. Yeah, well, we figured out that all those lakes around there were had frozen really solid and were all making that noise. That's why it sounded like it was all around. Uh, and uh, we've heard it a we've heard it a, a few times since then, but never yeah. that much. But that was a really good freeze that year without any any snow. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So just you asking about the learning curve helped me remember that because there were so many things that we had no clue about. <laughs> you know, other than that, you know, we had never been on a snow machine in our life. And here we are, you know, I needed to get one from town to Cub Lake. And uh, so that, you know, luckily I was able to get a hold of a, of a freighter that made the trip, you know, 50 times a year and uh, follow him back. But that was, I've never been on a snow machine in my life. And uh, so I had to learn how to ride a snow machine. Which scared me to death. He, he made this deal online. He, he bought one over, over the phone. And then he found this guy named Ken Lee, uh, who was a, a iron dogger and freighter out there. And uh, he made this arrangement to follow him back. And I was like, you've never, I, I thought for sure he was going to die. I, I, <laughs> as much trouble as we'd had, you know, getting our stuff just from the river, well, to the river. Well, the river, he was going to be on that river, you know, for miles and miles. And I, I just was I was certain that he was going to die. But there, you know, there's lots of things like that. And, you know, we, we did it, though. It, it, and we learned to love winter. When we were living at Cub Lake, winter was our best, our favorite time of year. Because we could get around. The rest oh. of the time, getting around out in the muskeg, we were pretty limited to right there around our cabin. And so winter opened up the world to us. And we didn't, we didn't expect that. Yeah. I was about to say like, once it actually like freezes in those areas, I mean, it's, I know everyone talks about summer and it's beautiful and it's bright and all that, but being able to like actually just go to town. Yes. We could, we could go to town. We could go see our neighbors. Uh, you know, we could go across the river and go to the lodge and, and uh, have, go to the Christmas parties. And yeah. It was, we learned to love winter. 
So that actually brings me to another question. You guys were actually able to, to go and kind of create a, a sense of community, even in this, this really kind of remote area. I would not have thought that would be the case. So, you know, if, um, you know, maybe you can kind of um, explain what the, uh, I guess the social scene aspect <laughs> is in this, this off-grid area. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, when you don't have neighbors and you, and you, I had two people to talk to. I had Sean and Roger, our neighbor across the lake, and we didn't see him all that often. Um, I remember when we would, during that first winter, we ended up with two snow machines and we would make the trek to the Squintna post office to get supplies. And just being able to talk to another human being was very important to me. <laughs> I, I really craved that, just the interaction. Because when my daughter-in-law went home, I just had those two guys to talk to. And so we met, I remember meeting a, a very nice gentleman at the, the post office, and his name was Tom Bryan. And he invited me to come over and play racquetball. And so he was really the person that got us kind of into that community. He he introduced us, and they had a lot of get-togethers at, at their lodge, which was the Talent Lodge. And so he was really the one that included us and got us introduced to everybody. And when you don't have neighbors, they're more important to you. Um, now that we live where there's people right around us and nobody really talks <laughs> and nobody even you know knows what's going on in each other's lives it's it's kind of surprising because out there it was important to know each other and be willing to help each other because there wasn't the fire department or the police department or ambulance we all depended on each other out there especially in the winter and there were times we had to ask for help yeah when we kind of learned while that first winter though that all these these people out there in the community they uh they knew that we'd moved in and they were keeping tabs on us <laughs> and, uh, and they were they were kind of laughing as we were trying to get our stuff they knew what was going on <laughs> and they couldn't help us and, uh, and we didn't know them but but they but we found you know they'd all been through the same thing at some point or another they all knew all of our stuff was sitting there on that riverbank for two months. <laughs> <laughs> and they all had similar stories through those. So. Yeah. And I'm and sure we, they were, uh, yeah, you guys were definitely the talk of the town. I'm sure for, we were <laughs> talking the neighborhood for a while. Just, you know, how yeah. are these, uh, are these people from Texas going to make it this winter? <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, I that's on us and I don't think many people were betting for us <laughs> <laughs> well somebody somebody won big <laughs> maybe but they became very special to us all of them out there and there was a little community right across the the river from us and then there was the people in Squintna so it's kind of an extended community you know, I'm really glad to hear you guys say that about kind of the, the community aspect of living off grid, because I think it's kind of a misconception a lot of people have as they're um, looking at the, the off grid lifestyle. It, and a lot of people are kind of caught by the allure of, oh, just going to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and not going to have to rely on anybody. And it's like, that's really not the spirit of like, a lot of off-grid stuff I've seen, or even the the pioneer spirit that I've seen a lot of people kind of harken back to. It's like the settlement of the West and everything was just very communal, and it's um, definitely just not the not the vibe I've seen from a lot of people who kind of live off-grid. Um, okay, so really that that first year though, kind of getting used to it, getting into the area. Um, you know, Sean, you were kind of talking about getting used to the the um, snow machine kind of that first year. Um, it kind of made me laugh when Ann was talking about um, her first experience on a snow machine. So uh, would you like to talk about that and how uh, maybe it was a little colder than <laughs> the experience of actually driving it? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we decided we were gonna buy one snow machine to begin with. And 
I could just write on the back because I had so many new things in my life uh, at the moment. I thought, I don't want to learn how to ride a snow machine this first year. I'll just write on the back. So we uh, decided to go to Squintna to eat a pizza and actually see somebody, you know, some civilization. And so Sean put me on the back of that snow machine and Roger went with us and uh, on his snow machine. And we drove the 25 miles to Squintna. And by the time we got there, I was about frozen to death. But I thought, you know what? I'm not going to gripe. The guys seem to be doing fine. So I'm going to just keep my mouth shut. But my feet were just like blocks of ice and my hands were so cold. And so when we got to Squintna, I was very happy to see Cindy, uh, another woman who seemed to be surviving the, this life. <laughs> and so in, enjoyed visiting with her while my, my feet thaw, thawed out a little bit by the stove. And we ate a pizza and uh, enjoyed that. And we got back on the snow machine and I thought, oh, I just don't know if I can make it all the rest of the way. And we stopped somewhere on the way to talk to Roger or something. And I told Sean, I was so cold and I didn't understand how he could do it without, you know, fussing. <laughs> he said, well, I'm not cold at all. And I thought, what? And so he said, why don't you drive for a while? Because the handlebars are heated. My hands are warm and my feet are all tucked <laughs> up behind the, the motor. And he said, I'm, I'm very comfortable. And so I thought, well, I'm either going to freeze or uh, I'll have to learn how to drive this thing. So I got on there and just a little bit, my hands were nice and warm and my feet were doing better. And when we got... Um, well, we got to one place in the trail that I didn't think I could go up. It was just a little hill. And so we switched back and he said, man, I am freezing. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, I'm not just a wimp. <laughs> it, was just, it was a different place, you know. The person on the back, that's hard riding. When you're, when you're driving it, it's pretty comfortable. So that was part of the reason I decided I wanted my own machine. Yeah, I, I get it. That uh, that makes total sense. I mean, also just logistically for you guys and kind of talked about this in the book too, like just logistically, like it made sense to have two just because if one of them broke down, I mean, you're straight out of luck. Yeah. So that that second one at least gave you some some options out there. Yeah, that can really be a life and death situation you break down if, you're, if, if you don't have another snow machine with you. And we didn't realize that until we were sitting out way out in the middle of nowhere and we had the snow machine turned off. And I thought he turned the snow machine off and I was on the back and I thought, I don't have the, the strength to walk back to the cabin. If this thing doesn't start, I think I will die out here. And he started it up and headed home. And I was never so glad that thing started. And when we got back to the cabin, we, he had had the exact same thought. And when we got back, we said, we're getting another one because you can die quickly in Alaska if you're not prepared. And you've, um, and especially out like that, you really have to think, think through things. It's not like being on the road system where somebody's going to come along and be able to help you. You have to think through all the different scenarios and make sure that you're prepared. Yeah. Cause I mean, the, the cavalry is really not coming. Like no. if you, if something happens out there. Yeah. No. So did you guys have anything else like getting the second snow machine? Um, are there other like safety things you were able to do to, uh, to make it a little bit safer? Did you guys like have, it sounded like you were actually getting fairly good reception out there. Um, so were you able to like text? Did you have to use sat phones? Like, you know, what did that you all know, look like out there? When we were at the cabin, uh, we, we had cell reception. If we put the phone in one window, of the cabin and we could talk a little bit and text a little bit as long as the tower was up but some, you know the tower is up on a snowy mountain and it would go down every now and then and we were <laughs> without communications for about usually about a week at a time yeah so oh and but we'd see the helicopter i got to where after five years i got to where i would see the helicopter coming it would it would fly right over our house and i could tell it was going out to the the hill to either gas up the generator for the tower. So I'd wave at them because I knew I was going to get reception again. <laughs> That's awesome. You guys were probably one of the few landmarks they had out there. 
I'm thinking about, uh, you know, we did after a while, I mean, we took, uh, we kept a, a, a food supply with us when we traveled on snow machine. And yeah, we, you know, we were prepared to camp out at night on a snow machine if we had to eventually, you know, once we figured out that, okay, we, we need to do a little more than just get on a snow machine and go. Yeah, you know? there's a, there's some other scenarios how this, this trip might end. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and even reading some of the books about how people uh, would would dig holes in the in the snow and just hunker down for the night instead of, I remember after reading some of that thinking, you know, there's more options than just plowing through and trying to get home. You know. Well, and talking to some neighbors that, that had done this, had been through that, and uh, you know, I just you don't have to die. There's yeah. a, lot, a lot of things you can do to survive out there. <laughs> and in that first winter, when we were going back and forth to the post office uh, to get supplies and, and go see Cindy at the roadhouse, we saw people uh, just with little sleds walking that river. There were people who would walk a thousand miles with just a sled full of supplies just for the fun of it. <laughs> and I thought I, it was shocking. You know, oh, there were these. These these extreme races where people just they were walking to know. I'm glad you guys brought that up. Yeah, I've actually interviewed quite a few of those people. It's called the Iditarod Trail Invitational, and yeah, it is yes. the the same route the sled dogs go on, but yes. they've just got a 50 pound sled and just them against the wilderness for like a month or two months out yeah, there. People thought we were crazy. Yeah, you know? yeah. After that, I thought well, we have a cabin. <laughs> you know? they can survive we can survive you know and you just kind of have to realize that when you get in situations like that you can't panic you you have to be able to just kind of think through so yeah as as long as you just don't roll up into a ball and go okay well this is how it ends <laughs> turn off the motor salute the world and that's the end of it <laughs> that's right so after seeing some of that it helped us realize that it was doable yeah, absolutely. So I think it was uh, back in 2018 then, um, you know, you have the transportation with uh, with snow machines during the wintertime. Um, both of you are pilots and y'all were able to, um, to go and purchase a plane. Um, you know, Sean definitely um, you got into a wreck during the, during one of the, the, I think it was some kind of a trying to get a new rating for the landing, if I recall correctly. But um, Sean, would you like to talk a little bit about the, you know, kind of the crash and how all that shook out? Yeah, I uh, we had bought the plane during during the summer and and it was on floats, so we so I had to get a float rating because I wasn't we didn't, you know we don't fly float planes in Texas, and so <laughs> I had to get a float rating, and that was that was great. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I love flying floats. Uh, but at the end of the end of the summer, when the lakes are starting to freeze up, you've got to switch over to wheels and eventually skis. And uh, and I so I, we switched over to wheels, and that was my first tailwheel airplane. Also, uh, I've flown lots of different airplanes, but they are all nose wheel airplanes. So I went and got a from the same instructor got a, a tailwheel endorsement, and uh, uh, you know flew some time in town. And our air land airstrip out at Cove Lake is only 550 feet long, so it's not a not a junior varsity airstrip. I mean, it's you really got to be on your toes. And I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it yet, because here I, I mean I'm a multi thousand hour pilot, but not with a tailwheel. So I started doing a lot of practicing in town, and I went to a friend's airstrip, and he had a pretty challenging airstrip, and I was flying off of Pierce Airstrip a lot. And it was getting to the point where, you know, I had to make a decision. I had to get home before I couldn't get home. And, uh, and you know, Ann was there, and I needed to be there for a freeze-up. I'd been at the cabin about a week by myself. So uh, my friend, he had a Husky airplane, and he was a very competent pilot. So what we decided was that I was going to leave my plane with him, and then he was going to fly me in and uh, to Cub Lake and uh, – 
and then I would stay there for freeze up and go get my airplane. Well, we made the decision. I told Dan that, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And uh, my friend Ray, he said, he said, well, he said, he said, I need to pull my plane in the hangar and let it thaw out for, for about an hour or so and warm up. He said, why don't you go out and just do a little bit more practicing on my airstrip? So I did. Well, my first takeoff after we we had that discussion, I was climbing out. I lost engine power. And, uh, and I really didn't have any place to go. I was only about 300 feet off the ground. I just had cottonwood trees under me. And, uh, and I went down and went through the trees, uh, hit the ground. And, uh, and there I was. And I was in a place where really nobody was going to get to me uh, very easily. And I was trapped in the plane. I couldn't get out of the plane. Uh, ruptured both fuel tanks. I had ab gas all over the place. But luckily, uh, didn't catch on fire. But, uh, but also, luckily, my friend Ray, he was standing, him and his wife were standing outside when I took off. They didn't see me crash, but they heard my engine quit. And, uh, and whenever, after I was on the ground and the dust started settling, uh, I checked my phone, which I had in a, in a breast pocket, and it actually worked. I had cell reception there. So I called him and told him, hey, I crashed. And uh, he said, yeah, I know. I heard your engine quit. And he said, I've already called the rescue coordination center. And uh, he said, I'm about to get in my airplane and come find you. And he found me real quick. So I was probably 200 yards off the end of his runway. Uh, and, but he, nobody could get to me. So the Air, the Air National Guard showed up with a PAVOC helicopter with a pararescuement. And those guys came in and cut me out of the airplane. Then they hoisted me out, took me to the hospital uh, in, in Anchorage at Providence Hospital. Uh, had 15 broken bones, punctured left lung. And uh, I was, you know, I was in pretty bad shape for a while. Yeah, well, in the book, they were talking about just how, like, calm you were when you were making the phone call and I mean kind of describing the scene with all the injuries and the, the gas all over the place and the legit concern that like a spark's going to ignite you know all the, the fuel that's there I um, yeah hats off to you I, I don't think I could be uh, that calm and collected well you have call. to remember that I just retired from a 28 year law enforcement career and I, I've been through lots of pretty bad scenarios and I had to learn to be calm. Were they able to figure out what happened to the plane? Because it sounds like it was just like some kind of motor or like engine failure. Because it didn't like it sounds like you responded and did all the procedures correctly. So I just don't understand. You know, they don't know exactly why it happened, but their best guess is an NTSB and the Lycoming engine, they all came and investigated. Their best guess is that uh, one of my magnetos, and there's two magnetos on the airplane, that one of them, my left magneto probably started cross-firing and it causes the right magneto to start cross-firing. And, uh, and from what I described to them, how it happened, that was their, that's their best guess of, of uh, what happened, but nobody knows for sure. Gotcha. Yeah, scary stuff though. Scary stuff. So you've got plenty of broken bones, um, a lung that's um, not collapsed, luckily. And like you got, you're in Providence, like how many days? Five days. They do not like people being there very long, I've noticed. <laughs> no. No, they, they basically kicked us out. I wanted him to stay longer. <laughs> I was afraid to take care of him because the injuries were so significant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, luckily the, you know, you kind of mentioned this in the book, like all the bones were like aligned at least. So you didn't have to like go through any surgery. So it's like, it's just a matter of like letting time do its thing, but still that's painful. Yeah, it was extremely painful. painful. Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's, uh, and then in 2018, we had like the, the big earthquake too. So yeah, how <laughs> yeah. many strikes did you get in a year? The crash was November 1st. The, the, the earthquake, earthquake was, was the last day of the month. Yeah. So it was the first day of the month and the last day of the month. So I decided November was not my favorite month. 
<laughs> no, I, I get that. I get that. Yeah, and it was it was kind of interesting because we would go see the you know the doctors. I remember talking to one doctor in particular right after the earthquake. And you know how everybody was after the, were you there during the earthquake? I sure was. Yeah. I was in a okay, uh, so. classroom of like middle schoolers and high schoolers. So, yeah. <laughs> so you know how everybody was, every time you'd see somebody, it's like, where were you when it happened? You know? And so <laughs> that, that doctor who had seen Sean the night of the crash, he was all hepped up. Cause I think we went to see him like the next day later. and uh, he was, where were you? And, and, so we talked about it a little bit and I, but I said, you know, uh, the earthquake was not as big of a deal to us as was the crash. And he kind of stepped back and he goes, oh yeah, I guess not. <laughs> it gives you some perspective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that did help him realize, you know, when he has a crash victim come in, how significant it is to their life. Yeah. Cause I mean, at that point, just an earthquake is just like, um, it's just kind of a whatever kind of thing. Yeah, it was. It, it really was. That, that was not our main concern at that point. I mean, though, even though that was a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was sure something I remember. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that definitely goes in the scrapbook, but oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's not going to be the highlight of the, uh, the family's Christmas card for the year. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, uh, yeah, that was such a wild like earthquake too. And I mean, I know this is like the first like big one we've had in just decades and, um, you know, guys were able to able to experience it, but, uh, what was wild, I was talking with someone before and they said the like the violence of the shakes were pretty similar to what they were back in. I think it was, was it 68 or 64, 64. 64. Yeah. So as violent as the shakes back in 64, they just leveled the entire area. The difference is this shake lasted for about 48 50 seconds and the one back in 64 lasted for nearly five minutes yeah yeah you so, know and we've been through several earthquakes before that one in alaska small ones small you know four or fives and uh this one it just you know 45 to 50 seconds just seems like a long time when it's happening it just is because most of them they're they're there and gone before you can really react a whole lot but this one is like, gosh, is this thing going to stop? You know, and there's glass breaking in the kitchen. And it felt and, like it. And the it lights, brought, all the lights the turned the way out. Yeah, it felt like it picked the house up and just rolled it, you know. It was it was quite a lot. And it yeah, wasn't like I could take off running for the door or anything because no. the shape I was in. Yeah, I know. Like you... She didn't either. She stayed with me. <laughs> <laughs> to Anne's credit. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I could have. It was shaking so much and moving. And there were uh, pictures falling off the walls in the house where we were staying in town. And yeah, I, didn't, I thought the safest place was with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember... Um, like for us, like the, the shakes were happening. I was in the, you know, I was in the room with the middle schoolers and high schoolers. And I mean, you know, the first big shake, like everyone instantly knows what's going on. So everyone just ducks under the table, you know, you just grab a couple kids, keep them under you. And um, yeah, it's kind of like what you guys were describing, like the shakes going all over the place. And I could like see the door. There's like, you know, a um, glass window in the door. And I was just kind of staring at it and uh right as the electricity goes out and it's just complete blackness and like all the kids are starting to scream and you've got you've got the uh, the ground that's still moving and everything and um yeah it's uh it's definitely an experience um also to the credit of everyone at uh, anchorage school district uh, none of the teachers just ditched the classroom and ran for the door so <laughs> <laughs> well and we were very impressed with the department of transportation in alaska they were out fixing those roads that day and 24 hours a day and getting those roads done we would we drove one yeah, night you know, and i had a doctor's appointment you know Short, you know, within a day or two after that, I thought there's no, there's no way, way we're, we're going to make get, it. We're going to get to Anchorage, but we did. <laughs> we did. <laughs> they had those roads fixed fast. Yeah, they uh, they do understand like what keeps the state going, and that's that 
it's kind of like priority number one, keep those roads open and passable. <laughs> now it was well, concerning guess- after we spent like a week or so passing over the bridges by Eagle River. And then suddenly they're like, oh, these are structurally unsound. We're going to close them off. It's like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess there's one advantage to not having very many roads, right? <laughs> there is that, yeah. <laughs> Silver lining. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, guys, I really do appreciate you taking the time to to kind of talk about your experiences a little bit about about living off grid. Um, I'm just going to kind of end with this one question here. Um, You guys seem like very introspective kind of people. So, you know, do you have any big lessons you learned from kind of living off grid in Alaska, kind of all the experiences you talk about in the book? Do you want me to go first? Sure, I'll let you go first. You know, there's, listen to the people in Alaska. Uh, There's lots of people in Alaska that have been there for a lot of years and they know what they're talking about and they've got good advice, but you've got to go ask them uh, because they don't offer it a lot, but, but they're, but they're willing to talk to you, willing to help you if you just ask and uh, they can really save you a lot of, a lot of pain. (laughs) That's, that was my, one of my big takeaways from Alaska. Well, I think from us living out there, we really learned how to work together. Uh, that was important to me. Uh, we've been able to take that with us and we're a much better team. Um, we went to Alaska to grow closer together, to draw near to God and have an adventure of a lifetime. And I think we did that. Yeah, I can definitely, uh, I can definitely see that. I mean, it comes through on, on every page and I mean, it's, it's a great read. So for those of you who were, who were listening, uh, we've talked about a couple stories, but you're going to have to actually go get the book and read it, um, to get the full experience. But I mean, that definitely all does come through, but yeah, well guys, again, thank you very much for joining it joining me. Um, for those of you who are listening, like I said, you can find the, the link to the book and um, any other um, any other questions you have. Uh, feel free to contact me in the uh, contact information in the show notes down below. And uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>